Welcome to Podship Earth. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. This week, we talk cells. No, not prison cells or quarantine cells, but the stuff that all living things are made from. Cells are the smallest unit of life. Humans are made up of about 70 trillion cells. It's a mind-blowing number, which gets even more fantastical because more than half of those 70 trillion cells are not actually part of the human body. They are microbes. Our bodies are actually very much less human than we'd like to admit. What does it even mean to be human, given that we are less than half human? Microbes play a critical role in keeping us healthy. By protecting us from pathogens, by boosting the immune system, microbes can actually protect us from autoimmune diseases, they detoxify our bodies, and may even fight off stress and play a critical role in keeping babies healthy. It turns out that microbes also play a pivotal role in keeping the Earth's soil healthy, which in turn can provide huge environmental benefits like absorbing carbon, storing water, and producing food that has the microbes we need to be strong. This week, we talked to Dr. Rupa Maria. As you'll discover, Rupa is no average doctor. She's a forceful social justice advocate, a world-renowned musician, an urban farmer, a mother of two incredible kids, and associate professor of medicine at UCSF, who's investigating how soil health is connected to people's health. Here is her band, Rupa and the April Fishers, performing Une Américaine à Paris. Of course, Rupa speaks and sings fluent French. Where are we right now? We are in the territory of Huchin, um, now known as Oakland, California. We are on a little urban farm. I mean, it's incredible. You go into what looks like a normal house and then behind you, you've got all kinds of fruit trees. How did that happen? Just out of sheer will <laughs> and the generosity of our neighbors. So when we moved in, the first thing we did is we started digging swales in our land to help trap the water, to sink the water, because we knew we wanted to do planting here of food. And when we were out there with our shovels, our next door neighbors said, you guys look like you need more land. What are you doing? And so, well, we wanted to farm this land. They're like, why don't you take down this fence and use our land? We haven't used it in 20 years. So we said, okay, let's do that. So we had a great party of taking down the fence with about 25 good friends and our neighbors. And then we've been just slowly mapping out, you know, what we want to do, but the stage will be done by next month. And then we'll start a whole summer concert series so that children and families and people can listen to acoustic music and children can enjoy the the real artistry of music and how it works with bringing people together around food and good company. So you're this amazing combination of different things. So we'll talk about the music in a minute, but Professionally, you are a doctor. Tell us a little bit about how that evolution happened. Well, I've always been really passionate about understanding 
life from all angles, from a biological perspective, from a chemical perspective, from a microbiological perspective and a molecular biological perspective and a social um, perspective. And I'm interested in the tiniest invisible things to the largest invisible things that all impact how we live and how we are healthy and how we thrive. Thriving is really the space I like to be in. And for me, that's when you've got joy and music and your friends and community and people all being uplifted. And so that's really where I see people's joy coming out. And so when you don't see that, what what are we looking at and, and how can we help communities um, thrive? How did you think about pursuing a career in medicine? Was it in that context or was it different? I think it started with being the daughter of Indian immigrants. So my family, they were Punjabi and that, you know, you either hear that you're going to be a doctor or an engineer growing up. And so when I started to express a passion for life sciences, my family was like, oh, great, she'll be a doctor. Um, And so that was always like in my consciousness as a young person that, oh, of course, I love science, so I would be a doctor. Um, But as I grew, I was just so in love with art and how art brought people together, brings people together and and creates this space of imagination um, where we can engage what we wish to see and then manifest it. And so that power of manifestation was also very interesting to me. And so I, I lived this double life for a lot of my life. In college, I double majored in theater and molecular biology at UC San Diego, and then took a year off before medical school and came to San Francisco, got a guitar and learned how to write songs. And my songs were terrible when I first started, but I was just so needing to express myself. What were they about? Oh, God, I don't even know. I did. Oh, gosh. Um, Oh, love and getting burned in love. You know, there was one song I wrote trying to articulate what justice means to me and um, what I wish to see and to speak of injustice. I can look at those songs now as like you might look at a, a child's drawings, you know, look back at your old diaries and you cringe a little, but there's also a tender, oh, look at me, I was trying, you know, and I, I see that as a really bold, courageous thing is to simply just try to use your voice. And so... For me, going through that training in medical school, music was always my solace. It was the place I came back to and was regenerated in my own humanity. And as I went through then medical education, so my father unexpectedly died in um, the last year of my medical school in 2001. I was at Georgetown in D.C. And this whole time I've been like, am I an artist? Am I a doctor? Am I an artist? And am I a doctor? And I was so tense about who I was. And I think that most people in their early to mid twenties can understand that angst of like, who the hell am I? And how am I going to make my way and, and find a way to express my passions in this world? And that was a real active conundrum for me because I had these passions that seemed so disparate at first. And it was when my father died that I felt this like aha moment that I couldn't just waffle like this my whole life, that I had to be bold and because I could die. I could just, just, you see the, the finiteness of life and the absolute um, imperative to live 
in accordance with your dreams um, when you witness death like that. And as a medical student, I was witnessing death. And then when my own father died, it was like a whole wake-up call. So I had started my first year of internship at UCSF, and I walked into the program director's office, and I said, listen, I can't do this full-time. I have to do this 50-50 because I will be a terrible doctor if I'm not an artist and a terrible artist if I'm not a doctor and I have no idea how to make this work. And he said, I can't advise you to do it because I have no idea what kind of career you're going to have because like, maybe no one will hire you, but you can do it. So what did you do? So I ended up doing a three-year residency over five years, and it was the most prolific time in my life because I finally saw the path. And so I would be working my tail off at the hospital at UCSF, and this was right before they started limiting resident work hours. So it was like I got a million hours a week in the hospital, and then for two months straight, and then I'd turn in my pager, and two months I'd have completely off. And then it went like that for several years. And I wish that for every medical training person because it allowed me to digest what I had just seen, to love it as I was going through it instead of just feeling demoralized by it, and to really deeply hear the stories of my patients and to listen. And it's interesting because when I did go into that program director's office, I I ended up taking a year away. I'm like, I need to go be with my family and and just process my father's death. And then when I came back, I did this part-time medicine thing. And in that year off, I went to Maine to study documentary radio because I wanted to learn how to listen to people's stories and how to really listen as a doctor. And I wanted to learn how to tell stories through sound. And so I... I had an amazing time doing that. And it was great to learn something that was tangential to medicine, which I feel like anything that is examining the human condition is tangential to medicine because you're looking at what makes us sick and what makes us well. And you can apply that to what you do in your clinical care. So then I finished residency and they invited me to come on full-time in this capacity. And so for about 10 years, I was touring around the world with this band. I love the name of the band, Rupa and the April Fishes. We've been to 29 different countries. We've sung on like tiny, small, little stages and massive stages. And it's been one of the most exciting things of my life to be able to use music as a a tool to travel to spaces where I can see the impact of society on health. And that is really where I feel the deep integration of my work between medicine and music has come, has led to me now, um, where I am right now, which is weaving these things as tightly together as I can, like understanding that environmental health and how, you know, we look at these health disparities between white, black, and brown people in the United States, and we have to look at police violence, and we have to look at housing, and we have to look at, you know, pesticide use and access to healthy organic foods. You have to look at all these things um, and economics. If you're going to look at health disparities, then you have to look at medicine and how racist medicine has been as a practice. So there's all these layers and things that have really fascinated me um, that go into my music and then come out and then go into my work um, when I'm working closely with different community groups. So it's a really exciting time right now. It's good to be 45 years old. Good to be living on the planet right now. Yes. Yes. It's an exciting time to be alive. I feel that way. I I do too. I mean, sometimes there's a dissonance with what's actually happening and what we read about, but it's still an incredibly exciting time. Um, So one of the things that we talked about that 
other than music and, and that incredible connection that you have between music and medicine is what is in the soil, what's in our guts, kind of tell us about what role microbes play and, and how we should think about microbes in our life. Yeah, well, I started researching this work because at the invitation of my dear friend and now co-author Raj Patel. So Raj asked me to write a book with him after he heard me give a talk about my work giving medical care at Standing Rock during the protest camps um, when people were protesting a pipeline going through their drinking water, the Lakota, Nakota, Dakota people. And so Raj says, let's write a book together about the health impacts of colonialism. And I thought that was a brilliant idea. The diseases that affect us in modern society are all diseases of inflammation. So if we look at heart disease, Alzheimer's, autoimmune disease, cancer, diabetes, depression, obesity, asthma, all of these diseases, inflammatory bowel disease, these are all diseases where inflammation plays a central role. The immune system has gone off kilter. We're in a moment in history where the earth is inflamed so that the temperature is heating up. And so what is happening to our planet is really mirroring what is going wrong with our bodies in modern industrialized societies. And if you look at indigenous people who are still living the ways that they have for over 10,000 years, or even people who were recently colonized, such as the Irish travelers, which were a group of nomadic people in Ireland who were forced into settled housing in the last 20 years, you'll see that those people don't have those diseases. Those people don't have heart disease. They don't have cancer. They don't have diabetes the way that we do. Diabetes is you know, it's an epidemic. It's all over the world. The rate they're skyrocketing as well as um, obesity. And the way that we frame these things is that it's simply, you know, a lifestyle disease as if like you're just making really bad choices. But billions of people aren't making bad choices. There's something about the structure and systems of our societies that have been brought forth through colonialism and brought forth through the globalization of extractive capitalist projects that have put us in a situation where our bodies are expressing this kind of inflammatory state. And so I was starting to look at this question both on the social and on the you know physical level, the clinical level, and then on the microbial level. How did you come to this discovery that diseases caused by inflammation weren't prevalent in those communities? Like how, how did that aha moment come? Well, it's been a slow aha moment when I started to realize like, wow, is there a colonized syndrome? Why are people in India's bodies looking like people in Ireland? And why are people in the United States bodies looking like people in South America? But then when you look at these native people, they, they just don't have these problems. What is it about colonialism that's driving these differences? It's just been something I've started to pay attention to. And then in my work more in solidarity with indigenous people, really starting to deeply explore. So when I was done with my service at Standing Rock, some of the Lakota health people asked me to help them develop a clinic to decolonize medicine. And for me, that has been one of the biggest, most exciting opportunities I've had in my medical career because it is really allowing me to 
unpack what that means, how medicine has been a colonial enterprise and how we can decolonize it and what that looks like, not just for indigenous people actually, but for all of us who are suffering from these diseases of inflammation. When I was at Standing Rock, I met an elder, um, Candice Ducheneau. She's an Aglala Lakota, amazing woman who said point blank, you know, all these diseases that we have now this cancer, these diabetes, we, we never had these diseases. These are diseases of colonization. And it's hard to argue with that when you look at the studies of the remains of indigenous people that were pre-invasion from Europeans here on Turtle Island, you'll see that those bodies weren't impacted by these same diseases. And so how is it that indigenous people are living that is different from how we're living in such a way that these diseases of inflammation are not manifesting? And for that answer, I believe the key is in the microbes. The human gut microbiome is this amazing collection of cells that are even in us when we are in fetal development in our mother's bodies. So we think of the fetus and the uterus as being a sterile place, but it's actually not. There are microbes that are already there. When a baby is born, they are inoculated with their mother's microbes, and then they get microbes throughout their life from other sources, from their environment and from what they eat and what they're around. And so these microbes are responsible for everything from the development of our immune system. They turn on genes and turn off genes inside our bodies. They are responsible for our brain development. They are responsible for keeping us feeling healthy and happy. They are responsible for keeping our bodies out of inflammation. And so what's so interesting about this is that there are, I think, 90% of our cells that are on our body and in our body are not our cells. So we are more not us than we are us. And I just think of this idea because it's so challenging to our concepts of identity that actually to be most healthy us, we have to expand our concept to understand that we are entire communities of these millions and billions of cells living with us. I think the entire human genome has about 30,000 genes and the gut microbiome, so the organisms that live in our gut that are vital for our health, they have over 8 million genes. So just orders of magnitude, so much more genetic information. And not all of those organisms are active all the time, but when they are active, crucial ones are um, totally necessary for us being healthy. And how did we evolve with them? I mean, how did that happen? Well, I think microbes have been here. They're the single most successful living organism on planet Earth because they've been here the longest and they're everywhere. They're ubiquitous. And so we kind of evolved into their environment. And so we got covered with them and they work um, in these fascinating ways. And when we don't have them working correctly, what we get is inflammation. And so what you can see in the guts of people who are have a very biodiverse microbiome, their certain organisms will break down food substances. And again, they're eating biodiverse foods. Those people, those microorganisms will create in their gut these short-chain fatty acids that get absorbed into the body. And those short-chain fatty acids have this magical anti-inflammatory quality on the human immune system. So when we don't have that biodiversity in our gut, and that happens through eating foods grown on 
pesticide-laden crops or eating processed foods or not eating biodiverse foods. When we have very like a paucity of microbiology in our gut, we get inflammation. We get unmitigated inflammation. So the first and last defense against inflammation are these microbes. And so anything that we can do to increase the biodiversity of what we're eating, what we're around, um, and the exposure in our lives is going to improve that biodiversity. Here's Rupa and the April Fishers performing Growing Upward. We think of ourselves as distinct from the rest of nature and exceptional as a species. And yet these discoveries about the microbes in our gut and that really they were there before us and we're living in their world. How does that make you think about our place on the planet? I ascribe to more of a framework of us actually being a part of nature and integrated into, I don't see there being like a nature and then us, I see there being life and we are in harmony with life. And cultures that have evolved out of European standards of cleanliness, of isolation, small family sizes, and then the chemical assault of our food systems and the hyper-processing of foods, these are all constructs that come from and are driven by a economic system that was exported worldwide by Europe. What the microbiome research is showing us is actually that these indigenous perspectives, that we actually are one with nature and that we are multitudes. Um, and so I think that that concept that to have some humility in, in what we don't know and understand, and that when we are keeping vitality and biodiversity around us, it ends up entering us and becoming us. And in that we thrive. And so that's really, I feel like an exciting thing to learn right now um, from a Western scientific perspective, because it, it shows where we've gone off course, which is exactly how we've gone off course with how we're handling the planet. And so our environmental movement is deeply a movement for our own health. And our own health movement is a deeply a movement for the environment. Those two things are going hand in hand when you start talking about microbes. The lack of health for the planet is a European frame focused on humans being better than other species. Yes. And it's not now just European. It's all over the world. Look at my own sad motherland of India right now. So you're having a very similar technocratic, humans are the best, not only humans, but Hindu humans are the best. Um, so when you start getting nationalism and exclusion and these um, very damaging worldviews that create these false narratives that actually are ultimately wounding to our condition as a species and the condition of all, all beings here. I feel like this is really a time where the science is resonating with the indigenous perspectives that have been around for 50,000 years or longer. Those perspectives are the ones that can really help lead us through this tight spot where we are right now. So if we care about our own health, which for me is the most important frame when it comes to the environment, because 
there's only so many commercials you can see about solar panels or electric vehicles or energy efficiency or but what's motivating to me and to most people is health right and so how are you thinking about the microbes in our gut and how that relates to what we should be doing in agriculture in our lives what's the next step so I married a farmer, and so I was working in the hospital and watching all these young people come in from the Central Valley with bleeding, inflamed guts, and then young people dying of the most aggressive forms of colon cancer I've ever seen. I'm like, what the hell is going on? And in these patients who are coming in with inflammatory bowel disease, with these inflamed colons who'd have to go to surgery, and we cultured their stool, it would read out a paucity of micro bacteria, just very few microbes. Mm. So I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Why do I keep seeing this? So then I was sitting next to my husband and looking at his soil microbiology data one day and seeing that, oh, soil that's been, you know, when you apply Roundup, Roundup is an antibiotic. It's They've actually patented it as an antibiotic. So we're basically antibiosing our soil. Just like when you get antibiotics from the doctor, the microbes in your gut, that whole community gets killed um, or disrupted. And so you don't have that beautiful balance, that thriving balance in biodiversity that enhances your health. And so you have to build that back up again. And so what you can do, that's the exciting thing, is like these things actually are reversible. Um, and not over like 100 years, but if we focused our attention they're rapidly reversible. And so that's when I started to look at the soil and to think, okay, what is going on in the soil? Why does the soil of an abused, I call it chemically abused soil, um, why does that look like the soil of my Crohn's disease patient or my ulcerative colitis patient? And what's actually going on here? And I think that's where my artist mind started imagining, like, is there something, is there some communication? And that's actually what we're studying right now. We're working with communities to see if you give access to soil and farm in a regenerative manner that will build up the soil biodiversity. What happens to human health? What happens to the gut? What happens to inflammation? And so that is a question that we're under like examining right now. When you have an inflamed gut, you leach nutrients. So when you look at these ulcerative colitis patients or Crohn's disease patients with inflamed colons, they are leaking nutrients and blood out of their colons. They can't hold on to it because the translation of unlocking of the nutrients from food to enter our bloodstream is happening through these microbes. We can't get nourished without them. In inflamed soil, you have the same thing. So when the soil is not biodiverse, you're leaching nutrients, you can't hold water, you can't sink carbon into the ground and hold it there, and, and your plants don't thrive. And so the solution from industrial, you know, the industrial chemical approach um, is to just give more inputs, give more chemicals, force the plant into health by giving exactly the micronutrient it might need instead of starting at the soil and going, well, if I recreate the vitality of the soil, then you have plants that are more pest resistant. So then you don't have to apply pesticides because they can actually fight it themselves. Then you have plants that are getting nutrients from the soil. So just like the microbes in our gut unlock the nutrients for our food and translate it into our blood, the microbes in the soil and around the plant, so the plant has its own microbiome, they unlock the micronutrients in the soil and turn inorganic 
nutrients into organic, like lock it into life. That's a vital role, and it's not happening right now in most of the agriculture here in California. So if you look at a carrot that's grown in dead soil versus a carrot that's grown in healthy, alive soil, what's the microbial balance of those two carrots? Well, here's the thing. If we start eating food grown in biodiverse soil as a state, let's say, here in California, if and, it, and if it were not like a classist thing where only, you know, wealthy white people can have the biodiverse carrot and everyone else gets the like chemically like abused carrot or the sterile carrot, I think that it would be an amazing thing to see if everyone just had access to healthy food that had healthy microbes on it and and see what happens to our bodies, just like the tobacco ban. Like we had no idea how much of an impact it would have to just say, you can't smoke in public. And we did that. And the rates of fatal heart attacks and stroke, strokes dropped by up to 20%. And we're still saving money from that. And so we won't know until we try it. What's interesting about our approach in this world, um, in this capitalist construct, is that industries are determining public health. So why do we have fluoride in our water? Well, the fluoride is a waste product from the chemical you know, companies who are creating pesticides. So it's like, what do we do all of this fluoride? Well, let's just put it in the water. It'll be good for the water. And in fact, having fluoride in our water does um, prevent dental caries, dental um, cavities. But if we didn't have the onslaught of sugar in almost every food we eat, so if you look at high fructose corn syrup and the amount of sugars that are in our food, um, then we wouldn't be having this problem. If you create both the disease and the cure, then you're making a profit on both sides and who's suffering are the people. It's ridiculous when you think about it, but then it's tragic when you see the patients. And that's where um, I feel very passionately motivated to re-describe our goals as a society of prosperity based on our health because people are suffering needlessly and like people are dying and I've just gotten tired of watching them die in the hospital and so that's why like my scientific inquiry has now moved into the realm of like let's let's do something about this not only is it good for the people it's good for the planet because we now know that Soil that's more rich in microbes sinks more CO2 and holds it into the ground. So in California, we're sitting on 43 million acres of agricultural land. What if we could incentivize and support our farmers, not through subsidies given to industry, but subsidies actually given to these amazing family farmers? We have 77,000 farmers give them the financial security in a major transition and give them the support that they need and uplift them as the real stewards of our health because they're the stewards of our primary resource of health, which is our soil. You've got a six-year-old and a one-year-old. So how, like, you care a lot about their health as a mom and a doctor, as someone who's understanding the level and, and complexity of all these relationships. How are you raising them? Well, they don't eat fast food. Um, we don't eat much processed food in our home. Um, we cook almost all of our meals. Um, my husband's a farmer, so we grow a lot of our food. We grow food through regenerative practices, so we're always working on soil health. And 
We don't do much sugar in our house. We do, you know, sometimes, but we don't do much processed food. And so maybe they'll grow up hating me for that. <laughs> or, you know, it sounds like they're going to grow up. I mean, they, they love the community they're around. So for them, it's not just eating this food in isolation. It's food with friends and food with community and food with purpose and food with joy and food with beauty and food with music. And so those are the things that, you know, we do with our family. And I, that's the thing that breaks my heart is to think that, you know, these kids are facing the climate, the climate crisis. And so they're going to look at me and be like, what did you do when, you know, you had a chance to do something? And so that's really something that motivates me at this particular moment in my life. And how's your music changed through this realization? Like, as you've evolved in your medical practice, and these things kind of came in and out of connection to each other, like, where where is your music? Ooh, um, so my music has evolved a lot. It went from being just trying to really understand the joy of life in the midst of my father's death um, to really now trying to grapple with these issues and take them on like directly. After having been at Standing Rock and witnessed the violence of colonialism firsthand and patching up the bodies that were being brutalized by the police, by the state, by the hired mercenaries, I felt the need to communicate a lot more clearly. There was a grandmother there who asked me to write a song, you know, I was helping a kid who was vomiting up blood after being shot at close range by one of these rubber grenades um, from the police. She said, hey, doctor, I heard you're a musician. <laughs> I was like, yes, what does that have to do with what's happening right now? And she said, you need to write us a song. And she said, you need to write us a song for when we're taking a beating on the front line to give us courage. And so on our latest album, there's a song called Frontline, and that's in honor of all those amazing indigenous people who've actually been fighting climate change for 500 years. Here's the song Frontline from Rupa and the April Fishes. You serve and protect the pipeline. You serve and protect the bottom line. You serve and protect the coal mine. Serving up grenades and granny standing on the front line. Rupa, talking of colonization, like how has the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, changed um, as a result of, of Western colonization? When they arrived, it was so biodiverse. There was like a highway of tule elk going up and down. There were grizzly bear. There were giant salmon coming through this phosphorus pump from the ocean into the inland of California. Um, all of those things are gone now. And I think about like how the Yokut people evolved within their landscape in a harmony for 10,000 years. The water has been poisoned. The air is polluted. The grizzly is gone. The salmon's almost totally decimated. The tule elk's gone. And so you've lost this in that biodiversity that's gone. You've lost the microbial diversity. And that was that there was an engine of life that was driving and supporting the biodiversity here. Now it's being falsely propped up by the inputs of the fossil fuel industry through these chemicals. So how do we recreate that vast biodiversity in a way that's life-enhancing and, and job-enhancing for people here in California? If there's anyone who has the ability to weave together all the complex strands necessary to develop that vision, I'm sure it's Rupa. 
A huge thank you to Dr. Rupa Maria for inviting us to her urban farm sanctuary today. In life, we're so often told that we have to choose between the left and right sides of our brain, that it's impossible to be artistic and analytical at the same time. Rupa's path and determination shows how an integrated life, where we honor the gifts that we've been given, can connect us to a broader universe. A universe in which what it means to be human is evolving by the second. The microbes that live in us mean we have more in common with the soil than we could ever have imagined. And that changes the stakes. Our health is now inextricably linked to that of the soil. Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey from the entire Podship Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Spate, executive producer David Kahn, and from me, Jared Blumenfeld. I hope you spend some time this week getting to know your gut. Podship Earth.